Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, a quick advert before the show. My book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out now in bookshops and also I will be touring around the UK. In fact, I am touring around the UK at the moment every single day until the 17th of December, so I may well be coming to a town near you. Thanks, Robin, and welcome to this week's episode, which is the first of two Halloween specials we're going to be doing. But uh, as tradition demands a little bit of admin off the top, our November 1st launch event for Robin's book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, at King's Place in London is now almost sold out. There are only a handful of individual tickets left. So if you do want to come to that, uh, make sure you jump on the King's Place site rather quickly to nab those that will be Robin and Josie and Grace Petrie and Philippa Perry and Stuart Lee live on stage as a part of that event and obviously Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People is coming up in December back for what must be the 11th or 12th year of those uh, musical comedy science literature poetry philosophy variety nights each night is hosted by Robin December 14. 15, 19 and 20 at King's Place with a huge range of guests. Mostly different each night as well. Matt Parker, Helen Chersky, uh, Dr. Carl, Mark Miodovnik, Hannah Fry, Chris Lintot, Gecko, the Octavia Poetry Collective, Susie Gage, Dean Burnett, lots and lots and lots of brilliant guests. Uh, go to the King's Place website or cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to check out the lineups and get tickets for those. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com slash bookshambles uh, to help us keep making bookshambles. And doing the blog network and the videos we do. There's a great new video out on the network this week. Uh, a sort of jabberwocky, it's called. Robin reciting a version of Lewis Carroll's famous nonsense poem in a variety of different voices and impressions. If you go and watch that and then uh, leave a comment on the website trying to guess who all the different impressions are, you can win a signed copy of Robin's book. So make sure you go to the Cosmic Shambles website and do that. Now on to this week's episode, which if you are a Patreon supporter, you will get a a bonus extended version of this. An extra 15, 20 minutes of this week's chat is available for you, as there is pretty much every week. And this is one we recorded live at the Ilkley Literature Festival a couple of weeks ago. Robin chatting with our co-writer and co-creator of things such as Ghost Stories and The League of Gentlemen. This is Jeremy Dyson. So please welcome Robin Ince and our guest today, Jeremy Dyson. Hello. Good afternoon. The, uh, this is very exciting for me because uh, Michael Sheen has played uh, David Frost, he's played Tony Blair, he's played Kenneth Williams, and he has played you, Jeremy Dyson, hasn't he? Correct, yes. That was in, in the, uh, in the Apocalypse film. Apocalypse. That's correct. Yes, I wasn't allowed to play myself. 
Uh, I, I wanted to, but Mark Gatiss said I couldn't, so because uh, I wasn't because I wasn't a trained actor. So uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Michael, uh, we auditioned for it. That's the funny thing. Really? Yeah, except then, except Michael managed to skirt around an audition, and he said brilliantly, he said, uh, I, I would love to come in and read for it, but I couldn't bear it if I didn't get the part. <laughs> oh, that's, so, so did he hang around with you for weeks on end, no, killing the moves and the? I was spared that. No, he he did one lunch basically, which was on the day of filming. So, um, uh, but very charming, a very lovely man. So I was honoured to be uh, portrayed by him on screen. I think he just did a vaguely northern accent. That was the extent of it. I thought he became you. It was <clears> the. Uh, there's a fascinating thing. So I, I, I watched one of the documentaries about. Uh, I think it's on the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy DVD extra of the, of the BBC version of that, uh, which is still so magnificent. So many wonderful lines. Mm. Uh, he's a, a cherub, but no angel. <laughs> uh, but there's a, where, where John McCarry talks about Alec Guinness spending a whole day trying to work out what glasses George Smiley would wear <laughs> and just putting them on, no, no. And then eventually the glasses he wore were exactly the same as the pair that John McCarry wears. <laughs> and I think you know, there's a lot of... Um, so we're going to talk about books. For those who don't know, basically Book Shambles is we have a different guest. Normally Josie is, is with us as well, Josie Long, uh, but she's had a baby and now she's found so much love in her life she no longer uh, seeks the approbation of strangers. So... Um, <laughs> The, uh, our first time that we met was with Andy Nyman as well, who uh, you co-wrote Ghost Stories, which is a, an incredible theatrical work and a film as well. And immediately we found our common ground was uh, the giant killer crabs books of Guy N. Smith. And I think I was probably on Loose Ends. You, you were, uh, it was for the theatre that's right, yeah, it was stories. loose ends. Yeah, and yeah. I'd just written a book called yeah. Bad Book Club, which was yeah. about my favourite bizarre pieces of fiction and non-fiction that I found in charity shops. And I had, I think, Crabs on the Rampage and Night of the Crabs well, Night in of my the, hand. Night of the Crabs, is, is, that's where we would have overlapped, on, mm. on the Venn diagram. Yeah. Have you never read Crabs on the Rampage? No, it's no. far superior. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> Crabs Moon is particularly excellent. Two, uh, a couple having an affair decide not to go to the Radio 1 roadshow <laughs> because they don't like Dave Lee Travis. And unfortunately, that leads to them being killed by giant killer crabs um, but this is we were talking before we came down here this this fascinating for, for our generation I would say the those boys and girls who have no fond memories of being picked first or second for games very often have fond memories of the first time they saw a BBC horror double bill you know maybe Night of the Demon and Peter Cushing in the Ghoul something similar to that and drawn to horror fiction as well what do you think it was that... Do you remember the first time that you, you picked up something and went, oh, I like this world? Completely, yeah. Uh, well, you know, it probably started with Scooby-Doo, in all honesty, um, being deliciously scared by that opening, that amazing opening. You know, the brilliant thing about Scooby-Doo is uh, it's easy to laugh and dismiss it. And, and, of course, it would have been seen as trash when we were kids. But that's the last thing it is. And I, I, when you look at it again now, when my kids were little, we, we would watch it and, and watch the, that first, those first three series, the ones that we would have remembered. And it was made by people who knew and people who cared. So, for example, in, in I think, the third episode, the villain is called Dr. Carswell. Now, that's a reference to Night of the Demon, which is one of the greatest horror films ever made, and a brilliant character played by Neil McGuinness in the film. And, uh, you know, so they, they, they were huge fans. And, and the care that went into it, into the design and the, the sound and the colour. So it's no wonder that 
if you had an imagination, you responded in kind. You know, so that, that probably switched me on, along with Doctor Who, which is another yeah. thing we would have uh, doubtless shared. Well, that was also that interesting time that when we would have first been getting into Doctor Who was at the time where they were doing loving rip-offs of Universal and Hammer Horrors, you know, Pyramids of Mars and Genesis of the Daleks and Brain of Morbius. Greater Mass, several of times over. Yeah, and that's, that's a... Uh, I have to say, by the way, Night of the Demon. How many of you have seen Night of the Demon? It's a wonderful if film. If you've never seen it, there's a new uh, collector's edition literally released this week, I think, uh, on Blu-ray. Um, you've got to buy it. It's a brilliant film, an absolutely brilliant film. And it has something which I didn't notice. I, I can't believe I'd never noticed. Uh, Brian Wilde, best known for last summer, Wine and Porridge, is... If you've ever heard Kate Bush's uh, song... Hounds, uh, which of start, Hounds of Love. which starts off with, It's coming through the trees! It's actually Brian Wilde. So Brian Wilde, who then throws himself out of a window. Yes, and you think, Brian right, Wilde, yeah. it's coming through the trees, Fletch. <laughs> Have you brought a demon forth? And it's, it's that beautiful thing that you see where, of course, all actors have, a, you know, there's things we know and we place them in that scenario. And it's, it's, it's fantastic. I can't wait to find Melvin Hayes. You know, Melvin Hayes from Ain't Half Hot Mum is the young Frankenstein in Curse of Frankenstein. Uh, another great one is uh, Paul Eddington, you know, urbane, sophisticated, light comedian, brilliant actor, but in um, uh, the, what's the Devil Rides Out? Devil Rides Out, yeah. And uh, playing it absolutely straight and all the more terrifying for it. I love Paul Eddington. I have to, I, I, I talk about in the show that I'm currently touring, if I remember to, because it's a very scattergun show. But Paul Eddington, who was a Quaker, which is one of my favourite, I, I, I myself have not got religion, but Quakers, ooh, they, they draw me towards them. Um, and uh, it's, it's not just the snack. And uh, but <laughs> Paul Eddington, when he was asked if any of you may have seen it face to face when it was brought back with Jeremy Isaacs, I think, mm. being the Inquisitor, and he was asked, how, and he was very ill then. He, he would, you know, didn't probably have very long. And he said, "How would you like to be remembered?" And he said, "I'd like to be remembered as he didn't do too much harm." And I think, isn't that a love? And he said, I think there's so many people in the world who do harm, and I would like that people remember that I didn't do too much. But and I think isn't that interesting? Because there he was. He was a kind of icon of popular culture again when we were growing up and, uh, and through the early 80s. But there was a fundamental decency about him that he absolutely exuded mm. that's there at the heart of the good life. It's there at the heart of, yes, minister, yes, prime minister. You know, even as he was, as, was playing in both programmes different kinds of fools, you could you could tell that they're throbbed this sort of power of quiet decency uh, that that was just part of you know I'd be I'd be I'd be staggered if I heard anyone tell an awful story about. Paul Eddington. Yeah, it's, I, I think the, uh, I'll add Margaret Rutherford, Alistair Sim, and John Lemessurier. I think you can trust. And you know, John Lemessurier's book about being an actor is a rather lovely book. And there's the, the beautiful his final words, which were, "It's all been rather lovely." And I think that's <laughs> a very you know very beautiful thing. So because we're talking about books, I, I, I thought before we talk about some of your books, because mm. the first book of yours, well, in fact, let's start. The first book of yours I read was a non-fiction book, both you and 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 Marks. It, it was Bright, Bright Darkness, Darkness yeah. which was about something which is now there's more and more writing oh, yeah. about, yeah, yeah. but about the, the films that involve a sense of, of haunting and the uncanny, and those rather wonderful, well, in fact, like the haunting, those yeah. films where there is something that is strange, that it's, you can't quite put your finger on it, but this is so, I mean, I just labelled them supernatural horror films, because I, I, I called them that to distinguish them, say, from Silence of the Lambs or Psycho, which are about human agency. And these always had, the ones that, these ones that I loved had supernatural goings on. There was a metaphysical element. And I was, I was always drawn to that. I mean, I like the other ones as well. But, but my heart, first and foremost, is definitely in that area. 
And I think the, the thing that's really interesting as I've delved into this stuff, I've gone quite deeply over it, uh, into it over the past uh, 10 or 20 years, is really these are religious films. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's mythology. And I mean, religion in the broadest sense. But because we are a secular society, essentially now, in all but name, um, that's where people go to get their religion. And the thing that makes me laugh the most as well about, um, or I, at least I, th I think is, is strangely ironic, is that Doctor Who, which is beloved by so many uh, atheistic people or people who would be very materialistic or, or, or think of themselves as being science-based, is about the most religious show on television. And, and, and the Doctor is so th such a thinly-veiled Christ figure. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just there. He, he, you know, he dies, he's reborn. All his values are, are just the Judeo-Christian values writ large. The, the aggression towards the being a female one is the same as when Anne Widdicombe got angry about women priests. <laughs> so we can see there's a common theme there. There you go. There the you Doctor go. can't be a woman, you don't seem to realise. Please read the scriptures. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely the case. But the... Um, the thing that's really interesting, I suppose, is, 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 not, is being fascinated by all this stuff for so long and then working that out quite late and then going back and, and seeing what that does to it and your own engagement with it and, and in the culture in a wider sense. I think that's interesting as well because I think something's changed where, when you mentioned kind of atheist movement, certainly the movement of it, which is in the last few years, I think you can see there's a, a schism between those who, who really do go, we must believe there is no God, and those who go, do you know what? It's mainly about what you do, isn't it? And I'm not, I mean, we had a lovely moment on, on the Infinite Monkey, which I don't think made the, the TV edit of the 100th one where Neil deGrasse Tyson was on. And uh, he just explained gravitational waves. And then uh, we had two clerics on. We had the Reverend Richard Coles and we had uh, Victor Stock, who's the former dean of Guildford Cathedral, the first ever out dean. And uh, I hope he, he has told everyone <laughs> that. We'll double check on that. Uh, the, the wonderful uh, human being. And, uh, and, and Brian went, anyway, thanks very much, Neil. Now let's go over to Clerical Corner. And Neil deGrasse Tyson went, Clerical Corner? Do they have a physics corner in all of their churches? <laughs> and Victor just went, where do you see in Westminster Abbey? Where we have Stephen Hawking, Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin. One of the things... <laughs> and you can just see the underground Tyson going, oh, I can deal with angry American evangelicals, but the camp and erudite members of the General Synod. And it was... And there was, you know, there was something rather lovely, I think, about, again, that bit where we don't need to have all that. And, and I think, not necessarily to believe in, in the magical, but to have that part of our mind which engages well, with uh, possibilities uh, of the strange. Well, it's also about, you know, and, and, I've, and as I've kind of studied it and you get, you know, eventually you get around to Young and you get drawn into, into him. I did it via Joseph Campbell. And, you know, Jung basically had it all worked out, but it's, it's quite difficult to get into, but one, his idea of the archetypes and what's going on, but it is absolutely fascinating. And it applies to mythology and religion, his reading of it. And basically, this, this incredible idea of the archetypes, which is that at the, at, in the base of all our minds, there are these, uh, these sorts of predispositions, cognitive predispositions. So, you know, you'll have the, mo the mother, and the father, and and uh, and the, the warring brothers, and the, 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 you use these to to look through. You look through and project these ideas out into the world and find them in nature. 
and it becomes a way that you understand your, yourself and your place, uh, your relationship to the larger scheme of things. It's absolutely fascinating, and then uh, uh, and it's really compelling. And once you get pulled into it, you find it everywhere. And of course, these these kind of stories, the supernatural horror things that we started talking about, maybe even Night of the Crabs, mm -hmm. you know, has has this element to it going on underneath everything. Maybe not. <laughs> the, um, what I love is Jung and synchronicity, merely because of the fact that I went to Oxfam Bookshop an hour before I met you and bought a book by Jung, all about the creative imagination. So I like well, the fact that has occurred. Um, this is now, on, in terms of the uncanny and the actually, haunt, one other thing to throw in as well, where we might have been uh, drawn into this stuff when we were kids is. There was one particular script editor on Doctor Who uh, in the golden era and the kind of end of the Pertwee, uh, Barry Letts, who was, uh, who was a, a devout Buddhist and was always trying to get spiritual messages into these stories. And the, be and the, and the best one, is, which I loved as a kid, is Planet of the Spiders. And do, do, you, know, do you know this? That it's actually no, a Buddhist, it's written as a Buddhist parable. And uh, in it, there's this, uh, it's the, there's this planet called Metabolus III, which is run by superintelligent spiders. And um, over them all is, is one called the Great One, who is this huge spider that's in a cave uh, uh, underground. And the doctor ultimately has to go back and confront the Great One. And it's the ego. And he has to go and confront the ego and destroy it, which in the process destroys him. And then he's reborn as Tom Baker. Now, you know, this, you couldn't get anything more profound. And this was being forced into the minds of eight-year-olds. And, and it changed them. You know, no wonder people were obsessed with this stuff. And, and, it, and it changed their lives and took their lives over. Because it's so powerful, that kind of story. That's for, I mean, at that time as well, the 1970s, where I was thinking Kit Pedler as well, who I think created the Cybermen. That's right, yeah. And Kit Pedler, he, he wrote books, or certainly wrote one book about, he became very interested in the kind of Yuri Geller ideas and the possibility of, you know, different powers of the mind that might be able to go beyond your, your, your own skull. But the 90s, was that something else you were drawn to? Because a, a book that many of us had, obviously, was Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, mm -hmm. which was probably our gateway to then reading backwards at other mm -hmm. Arthur C. Clarke's. But that, what do you think it was, in some ways you've explained it a little, Bit, but that period of time, so it's 30 years after the Second World War, mm -hmm. and this, this was a generation where we have things like Children of the Stones as well. So much stuff, again, with a sense of uncanny or, or the changes, which was uh, based... Um, who wrote the Peter changes? Dickinson. Peter Dickinson, again, which is... All of these books were dealing with trying to, as you said, a non, not, not an Abrahamic faith. No, it's a, a non-denominational uh, spirituality, I suppose you might, you, uh, if, if that's the right way of putting it. Yeah. And, uh, it's, yes, it's not identifying itself with any particular faith, and yet it's fully metaphysical. Well, I mean, it, it came out of the 60s. It came out of uh, what was, the, what, as the song had, it was the age of Aquarius where everything was breaking down and uh, people were drawn to the East. And for the first time, I mean, a lot of it was about mass communication and travel. Because you've got to remember, we'd only been open to these ideas for 100 years, 150 years, you know, sort of the, you know, prior to that. And, and, and well, most people couldn't read. And, you know, so the, the religion and spirituality you got was from when you went to church on a, on a Sunday in this country. And then gradually ideas from around the world were coming in. And, I, and then once mass media took off, television, radio, uh, that became 
a way for all these ideas to spread. Traditional religion had, was dying in, in Western Europe and had been for you know, 150 years, and yet the need hadn't gone away. So I guess it was the need that found these other things became a vessel for it, if that's, uh, if that's the way to put it. Oh, it's terrible news, isn't it, for the <laughs> Abrahamic God to go, what have you been replaced by? Spiders? <laughs> um, I knew I shouldn't have invented them. That was a terrible idea. Now, an, an author that I think that, uh, and I sometimes see in, in your book, The Haunted Book, mm. there was, a, there was, there was a, uh, a, a, had what the first, I think it's the first story involving the telephone ringing. There is, uh, there's a sense, again, of uncanniness, mm. which is Robert Aikman, mm -hmm. who is one of those uh, authors who I think is, it doesn't seem particularly well-known amongst a, a broad group of people, but amongst people who are interested in the ghostly and the uncanny. Robert Aikman, I think, also, did he start the British Waterways That's Association? Right. He, had, he had a double life, so he, he was responsible for um, uh, the restoring the canals, yeah, almost single-handedly, him and, him and one other guy, I can't remember the other guy's name, but, but, uh, but also had this other life as perhaps the greatest writer of supernatural fiction, short stories, one of the greatest the country's ever produced, certainly up there with M.R. James, and, and possibly, I mean, I, I have this thing with Aikman that his reputation seems to grow year on year, because this year there's a, there's a New York Times uh, compilation of his work that's just been published. And, you know, he, people, more and more people talk about him. Because to me, he's, he's closer to Kafka than, say, uh, someone like James, who was essentially writing entertainments. Mm. Whereas, you know, Aikman's was a serious enterprise. And if he'd been a Latin American author, he'd be, he'd be completely seen as a, you know, a literary giant. But because we've been, we're snobby about genre fiction in this country, I think... Uh, He's there there is a real snobbiness, isn't mm. there? And I think it's a very interesting thing where we see whether it's horror, science fiction, crime, crime fiction. I, I, I think even though now they, people are real, it, there's a lot of money in it. I think which is why maybe crime authors have such a nice time. If you probably know about this, you know, if you get uh, when Ian Rankin, for instance, was a, a, a while ago, he did an interview where he talked about the fact that he always found it fascinating that very often it was the lesbian crime writers that killed women in the most uh, unpleasant and violent ways, <laughs> and then I. I think it was the Daily Mail thought, brilliant, this will wind everyone up. And so they got in contact with people like Val McDemir and went, well, what do you think about that? And she went, yeah, yeah, it's true, yeah. <laughs> we were talking about that in Harrogate, actually. We had a really good time. We are all getting drunk. And, yeah, you must be pretty angry. No, 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 we're, we're absolutely fine. We're in a band together now. You know, the, uh, it's, and, but I, in one way, that, that negativity, but I wonder if by feeling that you're not embraced by, you know, that, that not, not you generally, but mm. the whole thing of, you know, the literary prizes. You, know, you have occasionally, like Margaret Atwood has been allowed to both write science fiction mm. and, and be revered, and, and, and rightly so, I mean, she's, she's magnificent. But I, I wonder that by actually going, okay, we live in the ghetto, so do you know what, it's kind of cool here, and mm. that somewhere that that might help, I don't know, the, the, the creativity. Well, actually, as I get older, I'd much rather have readers than prizes, wouldn't you? It's, uh... I'm yet to find out. <laughs> Because that's, that's what it's about. You just want people to read your stuff, and, and so the prizes is secondary. I mean, Aikman was, I think, would have liked to have prizes, and he, he, it, did, it did rankle with him that um, he wasn't more revered in his own time. Um, but that's, you know, what writer doesn't think that? Oh, you know, that, that's fairly universal. In fact, one of the things I really, I really cherish is like, a few years ago I did, um, I did an adaptation of uh, some of the Roald Dahl adult short stories as a theatre piece. And... Um, 
uh, and one of the treats was going to Great Missenden to his house and being allowed to sit in the shed and, you know, soak up the atmosphere. And one of the things I noticed on the wall, because it was all untouched from uh, when he died, there was a little yellowing newspaper clipping in a glass frame, and it was uh, a Sunday Times bestseller list from, like, 1973, and it was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was at number two. And uh, there might even be, it might even have been underlined. And uh, it was so telling. You just thought, well, there's the universal writer. You know, that, that's, that meant so much to him because he'd put it on the wall. Who, in terms of your own creativity, who do you think, who do you see as, 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 as the influence? Because I think everyone, when they start, you can kind of, you, you, you sense the influence and, and then it slowly, it, it appears to get weaker, but it's always, you know, when I'm larking about on stage and I'm shouting and doing stupid impersonations, there's a little bit of me that just remembers the fact that when I saw Rick Mail when I was nine years old, it was one of the greatest moments of my life. And when I'm leaping around <laughs> and realising that my cardigan has become overly tight, I realise that Alexis Sale still lives somewhere within me. You know, I can't, it's not as if, uh, so I, I wonder who, in, in terms of writing, if, if there is, you, you think that's where the seed really blossomed? Well, there's, t there's twin tracks. So there's the comedy and then there's the, the sort of, you know, uh, the fiction and the supernatural stuff. <clears throat> so for the comedy, it was absolutely, it was Python, no question. And that was, but that was, I was too young for Python on telly. So it was through all the peripheral stuff. So it was, it was through the books, through bits. The, the first contact would have been going being taken shopping by my auntie Frida on, uh, and Uncle Les, who were bohemian London types. And uh, they'd come up for the weekend, and they took me to a place my parents never would, which was a hotbed of sort of Marxist conspiracy and, uh, and, and degradation, which was Miles University Bookshop in Leeds, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is no longer there. And uh, on a pile was um, Monty Python's brand new box which was the hardback, the original hardback mm -hmm. edition. And I picked this thing up because it had a misprint, a deliberate misprint on the front. That was the first thing. And then it had a, uh, what is now a kind of standard comic trope with these sorts of books, which was a, a like a thumbprint, inky thumbprints, and a coffee, a ring of a coffee cup. And I, I sort of, I picked it up, but then it was unfamiliar to see something like that, thinking, what's that? And then realized it was printed onto the cover and thought, wow, this is amazing, it's a joke. It's like something you buy from a joke shop. And then taking off this dust jacket, and underneath was this, uh, it said, Tits and Bums, A History of Church Architecture. <laughs> <coughs> and there was a picture of bottoms and breasts. And, well, that was it. That was it. I was just <laughs> completely hooked. And, and that was Python. And then I got the records. And then on my 11th birthday, was taken to see a double bill of, um, and now for something completely different, and Holy Grail. And so that was it. I was just sucked in completely. And that's all I wanted to do was be in Monty Python and do Monty Python. So started improvising sketches into a cassette recorder with my best friend at school, Steve Cook. And we did that for years. We did that from being, you know, probably then, from being 11 or 12, right through until after we left school. You know, I've still got those tapes stacked up. Um, so that was one thing. And then with the, with the writing and writing fiction, that actually came later because I, n I would never have had any interest in that as a kid because I didn't have the patience for it. You know, I didn't to be able to sit there and write a story. And uh, whereas the comedy stuff, you could just improvise. And 
then I read the book. It was a, it was a book and a writer. So I, was, I loved Stephen King. So via Guy and Smith and James Herbert would have come quite quickly round to Salem's Lot, The Shining. And then... I'll tell you what, Salem's Lot still really works as a TV one as well. Oh, you know, yeah. Sometimes it, yeah, if yeah. You've, I, I, I sometimes forget that James Mason... Uh, is always utterly brilliant. And, mm. I, 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 you know, Lady Gaga and the other bloke, whatever he's called in <laughs> Star is Born, might be good, but there's never going to be a moment like, you know, James Mason walking into the sea in reflection or with Judy... Go- yep, that, that. But him, when he just goes, bow to the master preacher, man. And it's yeah, just yeah, such yeah. a... Be- and and the, if you've never seen it, by the way, there's a fantastic thing of, uh, called Home James. It's a documentary. Where, have you seen it? Where James no. Mason goes back to Huddersfield. Uh, no. And it's absolutely... The people of Huddersfield are a quiet people. It was a while ago. <laughs> the... Uh, but it's 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 a fa- sorry anyway. But yeah, the uh, so lot. yeah. So then so then from Salem's Lot, then there was a book that came out eighty two called Dance Macabre, which was Stephen mm. King's non fiction. It was a him writing about his fascination with films. With it's a brilliant book. It, it covers it's really Catholic. It goes films, it goes literature, it covers everything. And he had a whole chapter in this on the writer I'd never heard of called Ramsey Campbell. Not at that time, never heard of him. A British writer from Liverpool. Um, and he wrote this impassioned kind of celebration of, of, of what Campbell did that was so impressive that immediately I thought, I've got to read this guy. And it wasn't easy to find Ramsey's stuff at that time. Uh, he'd written a lot of short stories, and he just started writing novels. But this was pre-Waterstones, you know, obviously pre-Amazon, so it was just what you could find in Smith's or in Austic's in Leeds. And eventually I found a book of short stories of Ramsey's called Dark Companions in Smith's in Leeds, where the fountain is still, oh, the fountain's not there, but the Smith's is still there. I got this book and, I, uh, and it had some of the stories that Stephen King had, had, had been raving about. I sat down, I think I just sat and read it on the fountain and that was it. I just thought, that I want to do that. It was what I'd been waiting to read. It, it was, there was something revolutionary about it and I think what it was was that he took... Because at that time, I also loved um, kitchen sink naturalism. I'd started watching, you know, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, Kind of Loving, Billy Lyre, those, that strand of, of British cinema. And Ramsey sort of took that working class northern, that was the thing, it was northern, it wasn't metropolitan, uh, the world basically that I had grown up in, and he put the supernatural tropes from Gothic fiction into that world. Plus, it was brilliantly observed character. It was really brilliant observed character. And, it, and I, didn't, I wouldn't have been able to articulate any of this at the time, but this, this is me thinking about it after the event. Anyway, I read it, and I thought, that's what I want to do. And I, for the first time in my life, I sat down and wrote a story almost immediately that was just a pastiche of what I've just read. And, uh, and then wrote another one, and wrote another one. And after about writing about six or seven, I sort of the eighth one was was okay um but i was uh, strangely i was i was strangely confident about, about them when i wouldn't have been about other things and i did used to read them out to friends so i can remember reading them out to andy and then and then and then i used to get quite grand about it and i'd, and I'd be i have written another story and uh, <laughs> you know and invite friends around and sit and read it and uh, that was when i was at university and um but i didn't send any out for it was a few years before i'd sort of dared to send them out but then, the, then I was working in Waterstones in Leeds part-time when I was doing my uh, MA here. And, uh, and a guy came in selling an anthology that he'd edited, a guy called Pete Crowther. 
And uh, he, it was a, published by Little Brown. It was a really good anthology with loads of sort of horror fiction writers I admired. And I dared to say to him, because uh, I was running the horror section at the time, which I guess is how I was speaking to him, oh, well, could I send you one of my stories? And, you know, this weary look came over his face. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, all right. And, uh, and I sent him three, and he bought two of them. I mean, he, I cannot tell you, that's still the most exciting... I think that and the, and the Perrier Award, they, 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 on an equivalent in terms of sheer excitement, was, was him ringing me about three days later to say, what well, great stories, and, and buying two of them. And I couldn't believe it. It was like you'd gone from one place to another because someone had read just, just what you'd written and liked it. You know? and, uh, so, yeah, that was, that was all from Ramsey. And you know, one of the brilliant things about when you do this for a living is that you get to meet these people. And I got to meet Ramsey about <clears throat> 15 years ago. He came to see the League of Gentlemen on the first big tour we did, and uh, we went out for dinner afterwards. And I've sort of intermittently stayed in touch with him, and, and, and well, actually speak to him quite often. And, and, and he ended up with him dedicating a book to me about four years ago. I can't tell you what that was like. <laughs> to, uh, he didn't tell me. He just It was here, actually. It was at the Glutrich Festival a few, about four years ago. And uh, there was an event, and he said, oh, I've got something for you. And it was his latest book, and then I just opened it. I couldn't believe it. There is, how do you find dealing with that? Because there is a strange thing where, you know, I, I, I still find it. You know, as a kid when I was watching stand-up and when I was reading, you know, Watchmen and all those things, and then sometimes you do find that you've become kind of friends with it, but they also still remain the mm. icon, mm. but you can have a pizza with them, <laughs> but then you remember, mm. there they are, and there they are. And that dealing with both oh, those is a very and interesting... It, some more than others, because some... The kind of the icon will fade, and you're left with the person. But there's somewhere the icon doesn't fade, and that's really strange. So for me, it's Bob Mortimer, right? And <clears throat> I uh, and there's something about Bob that it just won't go. And I, I, I did a a few years ago. I worked with um, Bob's got a little production company called Pet, and he was developing a show with um, Dan Skinner, who the character he does Angelos. And I did some. I came on and helped do some development on him. And so we just did a couple of days uh, in a room with me, Dan, and, and, and Bob. And, you know, and I met Bob quite a, lot, a few times over the years because we've got the same agent. And, but I, I, all, for, all through these two days, I just, every so often, I just look up and think, it's Bob Mortimer. <laughs> and I just couldn't get over it. Couldn't get over it. That's the worst thing is when you meet someone that you admire and you think, just say as little as possible, don't let yourself down uh, because you're an idiot. And then you find out that by meeting somebody you admire, you become three times the level of idiot that you are. You can't bring any, <laughs> any logical thoughts. Well, I like that one you did where you went, what am I doing? What am I doing? You know, this is, it's a fascinating thing, that, that, that panic of the... But that's also something that I find interesting, I think, about a lot of the generation of your generation in, 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 in comedy. I think so much of it comes from a huge admiration of the things that... You know, when I think of, you know... The, the the work with say say you know Mark doing Doctor Who mm. and I think so, you know that bit where it comes from first of all I want to reinvent these they've let me do it you know that that chance to to be given free reign yeah so do you have do you have something in your mind where you think ultimately there will that my one goal is to resurrect or to release to people and something which maybe you treasure a great deal and is nearly forgotten by everyone else ah forgotten hmm. 
<clears throat> well, uh, do you know what? I, one th there's a thing I'm working on at the moment, which is uh, which is which is Aikman, and I've I've adapted Aikman a lot uh, in on a, in a small way. I've done a I've done, a, I've done me and Mark did a radio adaptation. I've done a, a, a bizarrely a, an, um, an operetta with Joby Tolbert based on one of the stories, and I've done um, a short film of one of the stories. But I'm now uh, working on developing a TV series of the Aikman stories, an anthology series, and I would love to bring those to a to a to an audience of you know a large audience of people that don't know them. That would be, you know, to, to do some terrific adaptations. That is a great pity, because I, I, not a great pity you're mm. doing that. Sorry, that was the wrong time. <laughs> that, that, that sounds awful. Anyway, <laughs> you know, I, because there was a TV series, and it wasn't, I don't think it was called Appointment with Fear, that actually adapted some. Oh, and, yeah, and that, they were it was destroyed. H, well, you, they accept this, they've, they've recently surfaced because they're on YouTube. Oh, there's an adaptation of the hospice. Uh, there's a there's two or three of not them. ringing the changes. There's ringing the change. Well, ringing the changes has been done several times because there was one there's version. The 60s one, yeah. Alan Moore actually just he, he said uh, I'll just explain it to you, and so I had a half hour of him telling me because he has this. Alan Moore is an incredible writer, and he has incredible retention. His brain, and he just t took me scene by scene. And in one way, I thought, what a pity that doesn't exist. And I thought, I don't think the version that does exist will be as good as Alan Moore goes <laughs> at that point as the corpses are coming up the stairs. <laughs> I thought that would be, he'd created something more lurid in my mind. Going back to the writing, it's interesting. Yeah. When you said about short story writing, mm. um, I was thinking David Keenan, who wrote uh, a book called This Is Memorial Device, which is, uh, I can't remember which award it won recently. He was saying about when he became a writer, uh, he wrote a whole novel and then just threw it away immediately because, in fact, he even smashed the hard drive, right? He went, <laughs> I have to destroy it. He said, because I realised that this is my first novel. So I don't want anyone to ever see it. I'm writing myself into the position when I can write a novel that I can deliver. Mm -hmm. And I think he did it three or four times, mm -hmm. each time then destroying a computer, <laughs> smashing a very expensive, because you don't get a big advance from Faber and Faber. You know, but it's, uh, and and I, I wonder, you know, that point, what advice you would give to people in terms of that. I remember Victoria Corrin said that when, when her dad, Alan Corrin, died, said the best bit of advice she ever was uh, given by him was, um, when you're writing a column, whatever your first idea is, uh, jetson it, because that's the one that everyone else has had. And then go straight to your second idea. When you've hit the second idea, still jetson that, because the people who know the thing about the first idea will have moved to that one. The third idea, now you're beginning to find your idea. And I, I, I think certainly, I've, I mean, I'm still very early stages. I don't do very much uh, kind of fiction writing, but I've written a few horror stories, and the first one is dreadful. The second one is uh, in a bad way. Uh, the second <laughs> one is less dreadful. And the third one, I think I'm beginning to find something which I'm less ashamed with. But, uh, uh, yeah, I wondered what your advice would be in terms of... Oh, it's just write. Write, 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 write. You know, and because the thing about it is there's, there's so much craft to learn. I mean, I'm sure there are some writers who are incredibly instinctive and come out with great stuff, you know, early in their career. But I think there are certainly, there's as many other writers, if not more, that, that become more articulate just by the doing of it. And that's what I found, is that, is that there's so much craft. And, and so the better that you get at the craft, the easier that you can get you out onto the page or onto, into the script, definitely. So, it, so learning to write without being self-conscious and to be prolific, that's, that's the thing. And to, you know, to do it every day. And it really is that 10,000 hours stuff, I think. There's, uh, um, you know, and, and to not be precious either. Because you know? if you overproduce, then you can do that glorious trick of picking out the best, you know, which is what all the best bands do. You know, imagine how many Radiohead songs there are that have never heard the light of day, so they can put the ten best ones on 
that, that's 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 all there is to it, really. That is the trick. Uh, that's interesting because I, I was going to ask you about in in, in the, the book that I've I've just done was the first draft was two hundred thousand words, which was at least eighty thousand more than was required. And the editor actually is that this book? That's that book there, which is available in the foyer, <laughs> and uh, it's very near the cakes as well. <laughs> oh, two things to lure you and. Uh, but I, I was, and the editor, like, he basically, it was like Jaws. He, he rang me up and he was like, we're going to need a bigger editor. Right? <laughs> they, they, they employed someone else to come in. And, and I found that uh, <clears throat> one of the hard things was, because most of what I do is live, and so you have some control. So, well, mm -hmm. it doesn't look like it if you ever see me live. But I'm like, you're throwing out loads of ideas, and, and you can then suddenly make it look like they make sense, because the audience are there. And what I realised with the first draft was that uh, it was fine if you were me to understand it. <laughs> it would almost be okay if you knew me very well, <laughs> but anyone else wouldn't have a bloody clue, right? <laughs> it was kind of like a, a, a very botched attempt at Finnegan's Wake, really. It was just all <laughs> over the shop. Um, and finding a way of writing clearly to be understood from the page seemed to me to be a very different, even though I've written other things before, but yeah. this one in particular, because I had a very clear thing that I wanted to express. And I it took me you know, a long time to go, and Trent, our producer on this, he said, I preferred your, your previous draft, but only because I've known you for 12 years. <laughs> if you haven't known you for 12 years and been out drinking with you, you would have been lost in that version, right? So I'm, I'm kind of intrigued about when you're, for instance, mm. that difference between when you're writing something like, you know, The Haunted Book, Never mm. Trust a Rabbit, similar, um, and when you're writing for the League, when mm. you're, or when you're writing for, well, in League in particular, because, of course, you, you're very close. Well, we edit each other in the League. That's the, that's the brilliant thing about collaborating is you've instantly got an editor. That's, that's one of the different things between, you know, writing prose. I mean, I ha weirdly, though, the short stories, uh, th that, that process is mysterious to me because um, uh, this, this, this strange thing happens that I love, just kind of almost, in the, you know, if I step back from it, where uh, some, some of the longer stories can be quite, well, you know, have a complicated plot that sort of adds up. And... Uh, and yet I haven't plotted it. And I find that fascinating. So there's a story in The Haunted Book, which is one of the long ones. I think it's the third from the end. And it's a sort of Victorian pastiche uh, detective story. And it's all set here, actually. It's all set in uh, Ilkley and Ben Ridding. And, and, I, and the way I work when I'm writing fiction is I just do 600 words a day. And I stick to it, and quite rigidly, and then just, which takes about an hour and a half. And I'll, I'll often do it alongside whatever script I'm writing or, or thing I'm working on. And so I don't think too much. I just write 600 words and then pick it up the next day. And, you know, and, and after a month, you'll have a draft of something. And what's extraordinary, or not always, but when it works, is, is then going back on it, and it's got a coherent plot. And I have not plotted it. You know, I might have a vague idea of um, where I'm heading or kind of what the one of the key moments is or something like that but that's all and I'll let the story tell me and, and, and I, I'm staggered about that I don't mean staggered at my own genius I mean staggered at the process of the unconscious mind can do that which is what happens when we dream of course and you realise that there's this huge overlap between writing and dreaming and it is kind of dreaming on paper which I think you know, is something you come across from other people saying that and it's, you could never do that with a script you can never, never, a script has to be outlined like maths 
if it, if it were to get it to work. He just couldn't do it. When it was when we were we were working up stuff for the first series before we went out and shot the first episode, which we did as a pilot, and we did a run of shows at the Gatehouse Theatre in Little Pub Theatre in Highgate, and um, so we were doing new material with a view to oh, for the television, and so Papa came out of that. That was really productive because Papa Lazarus came out of that, Les McQueen came out of that. Pop came out of that. They were written for those shows. And I can remember watching Steve, I mean, it was watching Reese do Papalazaro. And, and I knew the, the etymology because where it had come from, I've told this story many times, but it's really interesting because we're talking about creative process. So there were sort of three elements, right? There was Steve and Reese used to share a flat in East Finchley, and they had a Greek landlord called Peter Papalazaro. And Steve had, uh, done the, uh, had done all the paperwork, even though they were both on the lease together. And they were trying to get a Hoover delivered. And so Mr. Papalazaru kept ringing up, and Reese was answering, because Steve, Steve work, was working at Variety magazine during the day, and Reese was at home. So Reese would always answer the phone, and he'd say, uh, uh, Is that Steve? And Reese would say, No, it's, it's Reese. Yeah, it's Steve there. No, 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 it's Reese, but you can talk to me. Yeah, I need to speak to Steve. Yeah. And, uh, and then he was trying to deliver this hoover, and he said, I'm just trying to deliver this hoover. This is just a saga now. <laughs> and so there was that, and this was, this was a source of huge exasperation for Reese that Mr. Papalazzi wouldn't speak to him. Anyway, so he, he did this character, read it out, and I thought, that's just, that's just too private too personal, that's never going to play to anyone. It's just indulgent and silly. And that was, that was how I felt when I, uh, you know, when I heard it. And it was, as Papa Lazarus is, it was that sketch of, of coming to the house. And, uh, of course, it just goes to show how wrong that assessment was. And I should have known better because one of the best definitions of comedy I've ever heard, I've never forgotten it, was a, it's a Sunday afternoon arts programme discussion on BBC Two in mid-80s, and it was a conversation between Ben Elton, Jonathan Miller, and what's Valdemir, what's the arts journalist called? Oh, Valdemir Jenschek. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was, and they were talking about comedy. And Jonathan Miller, it was Jonathan Miller's definition of the best comedy is a private joke made public. And that, of course, is The Goons, that's many elements of Python, that's Rick and Bob. And what marks those practitioners out as being very effective is they have an instinct for which of those private jokes will play. And it's pure instinct because it is not rational. There is no analysis that could have got you to know that Papa Lazarou would play. No, no script editor in the world would have read that script and, yeah, that's the one. Thank you so much for, for, for coming along, Jeremy. No, thank, thank you, you for very much for everything. If you want to ask anything after, I, I'm going to be uh, at the, the uh, Grove Bookshop. I've got, uh, I've, uh, got the, the book which came out on uh, Thursday, uh, and uh, I'll be signing that, or if you just want to have a chat, uh, and I, I don't know whether Jeremy's going to be around as well. Um, but thank you. Have uh, a wonderful festival, and let's hear it one more time for Mr Jeremy Goss. <laughs>
Thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles to support us. Uh, share episodes and other stuff from Cosmic Shambles on your social media. Review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. All that stuff really helps get the word out about what we're doing at Cosmic Shambles and we greatly appreciate it. We will be back next week with a new episode on Wednesday next week on actual Halloween when Robin's co-host are subbing in for Josie Long on this episode will be Natalie Haynes, who's been a guest on the show before, and we'll be chatting to Anna Savory, who we had a very brief chat with a couple of years ago at Latitude. She'll be coming in for a Halloween special to talk about her life as the sole heir to Dennis Wheatley's Occult Reference Library. So you don't get much more Halloween than that. That will be next week, out on Wednesday. Until then, have a great week, be good to each other, and we will see you then. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles were produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 